Hello, everybody. Welcome back into another edition of Head Coach U. I'm Brian Fisher with D1 Ticker. Thrilled to be joined once again by Bronco Mendenhall, the former BYU and Virginia head coach. Bronco, how you doing? I'm great. How about you, Brian? Oh, I can't complain. Staying busy, certainly uh, as, as college football and, and the NFL picks up kind of kind of another crazy weekend. It seems like I, I continually repeat that, but uh, that is such as the nature of, of football and, and this sport. I, I was uh, look, actually looking it up uh, the other day. It's funny coming off of our, our conversation a, a while back on, on an earlier episode about kind of managing games. You know, half of the NFL games so far this year are decided by six points or less. So, you know, that that late game management, if you you want another lesson on that, uh, go ahead and be sure to uh, listen into an earlier edition of that Head Coach U uh before this one and Bronco, I, I mean big big things for for you you're you're all moved into to your new place how, how are things going at home wow there is so much going on but we there's not a single box left right now which was we plowed through and so we're we're in our home here in montana um just got done unloading hay at the ranch and so at least that section of the barn is done and so making huge progress. But really that was part of the whole plan for Holly and I is to build the infrastructure for chapter two. And so right to pause and get all this set up and then be able to really, uh, without anything else hanging over our head or things to make sure we had to get done, we're able to go um, in, in the term you and I just use kind of turnkey, right? Where, <laughs> where my wife and I are able just to show up and everything's good here and we'll be good wherever we go. And so, um, but back to your point for a second on on parity in the NFL. And I might've mentioned this on the last or on the other episode, I got my hands on a study early on in my career that was uh, commissioned by a team in the NFL. And, and their research was really clear, um, knowing that at that time, and I couldn't tell you today, but at that time, uh, the average margin for victory or defeat was a touchdown or less, right? And that, so that was over quite a, an extensive period of time. So if, now if you're thinking about a league that the normal game is a touchdown or less, wow, then the game management component becomes really clear. But interestingly enough, they had a way at that point to, to, to weight plays, right, to give them uh, value. And they were finding that three to five plays per game were really deciding the outcome because the margins were so thin. And anyway, then there was this theory, okay, what's determining the outcome on those three to five plays? And there was all kinds of theories, right? Uh, and and again, through this this research at this time, it's a little bit outdated now, um, but still resonated with me. At that time, this idea was, okay, what determines the outcome of those plays? And the first thought was, well, whoever has the most talented players, right? And that's that's going to determine the the matchups. However, what the research found uh, was whichever team had the most players doing their assignment at the highest level was determining outcome. And so really the collective execution of a team on those critical uh, extra weighted plays was determining outcome. So the team's culture, their execution, certainly the ability plays in, but the ability wasn't the, the differentiator, right? The collective execution of whoever had the most players doing the right thing ended up winning the day in terms of at that time determining outcome, which I've always it, it, um, it resonated with me. Certainly there are positions of disproportionate value, quarterback being one, no question. And the rest are debatable. There's all kinds of, but however you build your team, wow, if, the, if that research still holds today and the collective outweighs um, maybe a talented individual, then right, a, a group of B players, B as in boy grading with a few A players at the right position sprinkled in, could be pretty strong culturally 
and systematically could have sustained success was my takeaway from that point. And, and so again, it's just an interesting thought back to six points or less, man, if it's six points or less besides game management, you know, what else makes the difference? And it's worth, it's just fun to think about. Well, well, I love that you mentioned players because I think that's a topic that we're going to get into on on this episode and, and talk a little bit of recruiting. I, I think that everybody understands that is the lifeblood of, of every college football program. We don't have any draft picks in in this side of the sport, but I, I'm curious if we if we want to start out with a, a bit of a story. Do you have a really good recruiting story? I'm sure among the thousands of home visits you've done, you had to have eaten some some pretty good meals and had some some tall tales to tell. Wow. Uh, so my very first, uh, when I became a head coach at BYU and my very first official visit, no, uh, my first visit to a home, home visit, not official visit, my first home visit um, was to a player named Vic Soto. Vic Soto is yeah. the coach at Cal right now. Well, Vic's wife, Ashley, he marries her at BYU, ended up being my personal assistant at BYU, which is, so anyway, Trace this back. So if you pull the thread, my first home visit is to a player who ends up marrying, who ends up becoming my personal assistant at BYU, um, which, man, that's an amazing thing. But anyway, I go into Vic's home and uh, Vic really had nothing to do with the decision. His mom, because I was coaching at BYU, <laughs> right? And BYU is a faith-based institution with so many cool values and morals and, and just uh, such a unique experience. And, and so Vic's mom and dad were there. And, and really, it, it didn't take me long to realize, so Vic is here, but his folks are the ones making, making this decision. So Vic ends up committing um, uh, to me as the head coach at BYU. And, and so he committed, but he's looking at his mom before he commits, and I'm looking at his mom <laughs> just to see if he's committing. And so it's coming kind of third party, even in the same house. And so anyway, I just realized the impact of my first home visit was such a lesson just in family dynamics. And Vic is an amazing young man, a, a great young coach. His wife, Ashley, is so cool. But anyway, what I learned is parents really care, right? They don't kind of care. They really care about their sons. And um, a lot of times uh, they know best. And so even though, right, this was a young person's decision, um, at that time in that house, um, his mom was just so clear that this is what she thought was best. He trusted her and, but it was just that, I guess my point is the dynamic of each family is so different and distinct. And, and understanding that uh, and relating to that is, is so important because my job then as the coach was to ensure that her wishes, right? And what she was so hopeful for that he received at BYU for education and experience was delivered. And sometimes recruiting wise, yeah, it, it feels way more like sales and it feels way more uh, like a like you're brokering a deal rather than right establishing a place um, through consent and fit that really is going to be beneficial to everyone where the, the player will be just fiercely happy right, and have a great experience and right his role. Uh, and contribution will be at a level that really is fulfilling to him, but also so helpful to the program. And what I found, and back to the recruiting point, Brian, is that um, players are happy when they're playing. And the more everyone wants to be wanted and needed. And um, when you design your roster with enough spacing and succession planning where each player, or put it this way, 
where mo- the uh, the majority of players have a have a role where they're wanted and needed, they're fulfilled, right? And if they're treated well, they really don't want to leave, right? Even with the transfer portal, and so um, so much of this. Uh, I would say the, the 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 burden goes on to the coach to ensure that just not taking uh, lots and lots of good players at the same position, because at some point, especially with the portal now, right, young people, well, anyone in an organization wants to contribute, and and the time frames now with the expectations being so fast and so short and exaggerated with the dollar amounts, which accelerates everything, man, there's um, the stickiness takes a minute. And so if you, you have to go back to the right fit, the right role at the right place to allow the development to happen until they actually have the ideal role, right? But having a small role. But anyway, back to the home visit, Vic's mom, I think wanted that development process for him as a human being, right? To be wanted and needed and cared for at the same time on the field, right? That he could be wanted and needed and then contributing. So anyway, that. That's my story because it was the first one and a lot of, a lot of firsts you remember best. Well, I mean, that gets to the gist of, of recruiting, right? Kind of finding out who that decision maker is in, inside that family, figuring out that family dynamic. That's kind of what you and your coaches have to kind of focus on initially as you build that relationship, right? It is. And, and here's the other thing is that is the decision maker is, is what, what really is important to an institution or to a program. And so I, I, the way that I labeled it was fit first. And be clear, part of the fit is, are they a good enough football player to contribute at a level that will bring them fulfillment, right? And if you miss on that part, man, that takes an extraordinary young person to be team first and just kind of be in the background supporting others their entire career. That's very difficult. So part of the fit is the ability, but also part of the fit is, um, are they academically capable for your institution, right? Will that be a good fit? The next part of the fit would be, man, socially, right? Is that a place in relation to where they're from that they would end up thriving in, right? And are there like-minded people? Are there like-cultured people? Are there, um, but also is there enough diversity? Can they grow and progress? And would they really be happy there? And I think what happens so much now, back to not only just who the decision maker is, is what are they deciding on? Now you add in one other element, and you and I visited about this a couple weeks ago, maybe last week, and that's what does the NIL, what does the possible financial part of that look like at that institution? And so much of it now is coming down to if places are like or similar, then it goes to where could the most profitability come from an NIL um, collective or something like that, which is a whole other part. And so uh, if, if, if we're not careful, right, um, higher education is moved way, way, way to the bottom of this, which is part of human development. The finances move way to the top and the football, right, is right after that. But this other part of young people becoming, uh, I would hate for that just to be an afterthought, right? I really would. And so um, there's some challenges there back to the fit and, and right, I'm not gonna fault any family, man, that, that would really need and and look hard at the financial component of one of their their sons becoming and having this opportunity but what i do know right and i'm positive it won't be enough um i've been fortunate as a head football coach and it's i've had a lucrative career as so many have uh money it buys maybe opportunity it buys some of the comforts but it does not buy peace it does not buy happiness it does not buy fulfillment 
but I can't judge that, right? Especially if someone doesn't has it, doesn't have it. And so it can fulfill needs, which has to be looked at right after that, though. It doesn't take long before then. Wait, where am I? What is this place? Um, does this culture fit me? Does this team fit me? Uh, does my role right? And so even with the money, if that other part isn't right, um, it's not going to be uh, fulfilling an, an ideal experience. And so the decision maker could be mom, it could be dad, it could be the family collectively. Now, what they're deciding on, that's really where my alignment comes. And when I, when, if I identify what they're deciding on, and that has real substance, I love those families. And those are the ones I usually resonate with and, and get along with so well. And, and that usually gives everyone the best chance to really look forward to seeing each other every day after the games, whenever. And, and that's the ideal, right? We want young people to grow, develop and be happy. And man, if that's not guarded, they kind of just become, they meaning the players and the people, right? The young people become commodities, kind of to be just moved around and shuffled around. And, and, and um, yeah, that's, it seems way too early um, for that kind of approach uh, before they become professionals. Well, I mean, I think as as the old adage goes, that I think pretty much every every head coach will will relate to it. It's it's not a four year decision; it, it's a forty year decision, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I'm kind of curious, just kind of go back a, a little bit. What what is the process like that you kind of uh, maybe started with and, and evolved? You know, are, are you in there watching film of, of every single prospect before extending a, a scholarship offer? Like, how how is that dynamic working inside the building there, both at Virginia and and uh, BYU before it? Well, each process was different, and so at Brigham Young, I extended every scholarship offer. Uh, and the dynamic of, of BYU was so specific and the filters were so clean uh, that, man, I agonized over ensuring that um, a young person would truly be happy there. Right. And that's who they wanted to be um, and would be fulfilled. And so I extended every scholarship offer and analytics are huge. I love numbers. Right. And I love analytics and I love data. And under pressure, I want more data. Right. And then the intuition starts blending in. And so the initialist, well, and at Brigham Young University, I would not offer a young person in my career there early on, especially unless they came to camp where I wanted to see them demonstrate the competencies just so I could be as sure as possible, but also so they could be coached by myself or our staff and they could then see, oh, wait, this is what this looks like. Is this what I want? So I tried to be really transparent there to the point where a scholarship couldn't be offered unless they came to camp. And so I've moved off of that since, but that's how it started for a place um, as specific in criteria as BYU, right? And I would say that that would be a great best practice. The more specific the fit, man, the more competencies have to be shown and demonstrated with as least risk as possible. So anyway, after we, we assessed in person, right, then analytically, we'd look at their position and the predictors and the predictive analysis. This is independent of any computing service right, within our systems offensively and defensively, what were the key determinants and predictors for success at that spot, right? And then we, we uh, went even further and tried to um, have that algorithm go to age specific. So our numbers would be relevant to 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds, et cetera. And then, right, wow, we had to decide, are they gonna go on a mission for the church? And so there, rather than a five-year succession planning model, it was seven years. And so your recruiting class would basically come back or would be signed, but then you wouldn't get them for not the next year, the next year, they'd come the following year. And so you're trying to make sure the faith-based part was balanced also, but then the academic rigor at BYU was, was um, very difficult. And so we started looking specifically for what else will predict success. 
And that came after my first couple of years where almost a third of the team exited BYU and we were winning and winning a lot. But the rigor, um, I run a demanding program um, to develop people, right? Not just for the sake of watching young kids try hard only. Um, what we found as an additional predictor was other things that young people had done that demonstrated they were willing and wanted to do hard things. And so, man, if a young person was a great student and a really good player, but then held a job also, wow, that, that got my attention. And so uh, if in, in my faith, there's what's called early morning seminary, which is like Sunday school before high school even starts, right? And man, if let, let's just say their commute might've been 45 minutes to the church building. And let's say they had 95% or even 100% attendance. <laughs> that, that was like, okay, again, I'm, our, yeah, check, right? <laughs> so this is a great player who's a really good student, but man, there's additional things here. And then wrestling was a great predictor. Right. So any because it's hard. Right. And so anytime two players were of similar ability, similar character, similar um, academics, man, if one had done harder things in his life um, and was drawn to that and the other, it was they were more suited um, to our program and the program I was running at BYU. So the analytics were heavy in there. Right. The the uh, the, the the lifestyle was heavy in there. All the analytics were heavy. And then I was um, watching him in camp. We were trying to check every box possible. And then only I would offer the scholarship. Um, and so, yeah, and that really helped us um, reestablish BYU's success and have it be consistent for a long time. Right. And anyway, that was that program at Virginia. Wow. We had no idea what we were doing our first year in a brand new part of the country um, and and really choosing who truly fit at the University of Virginia. We knew what a good football player looked like, but I didn't know um, Charlottesville and I didn't know the University of Virginia and I didn't know the ACC um, and I didn't know some of the unique challenges and opportunities culturally there. And so made lots of mistakes in year one, but the more I learned about the institution, the more specific I could uh, frame that fit. And, and literally I ended up with a really simple <laughs> Uh, saying um, that I would not work with anyone I didn't like. And so for me to like them, that means, right, this would be in our building as a football office, but also it, it, if I went to a player's locker, behind every door of a locker or every office, there, there better be someone I, that's just an amazing person, like that I really wanted to see every day, um, who was also really good at what they did. And so I framed that into like, where I couldn't wait to see them, and they were just an amazing person to be around, but they're also really good at what they did. And that simple criteria was kind of the, the guidelines for then all of the analytics, which then were es escalated even at a higher level than what I said at BYU. Um, uh, and, and, and back East, they have boarding schools, right? And they have private schools where kids go off from other states and they show up and they're basically going to college before college. And so we called those profile schools because they basically already made the choice to go to Virginia before they went to Virginia because they were basically at one of these schools. And so there were profile schools that we learned about that really reduce risk and accelerated fit. If there were schools that were atypical for such a strong institution as UVA, then we would go hard, hard, hard to the character components, right? To say, okay, what demonstrated competencies? And if we couldn't have them demonstrated, we would try to orchestrate that within the rules as best as possible. And then lastly, um, that we, 
we developed this, my wife and I, over time, but every recruit uh, came to my place and got on horseback. And um, it's amazing after 30 minutes to an hour of them having to do something brand new, I could see how they took on something new, how their family handled that. Um, and, and were they someone that I really wanted after spending some time riding around the pasture that I really wanted to be with? And they could see the same thing. So at the end of all the analytics, all the intuition, right, all the school they came from, all their other activities, then when they came on grounds, it was still, and the next day, man, there'd be, it'd be follow the leader off the diving board at our pool. And I'd see who was taking a nap and who would follow and do a flip and who'd want to jump off and catch a ball and who would participate. And that's what our program was like. So I was looking to have those competencies demonstrated. And again, the whole reason is to have kids stay, right? And have them be fulfilled. But also this is already saying they're a good enough player to contribute, right? And even with all the rest, their role ultimately determines probably their highest degree of happiness, not exclusively. So you still had to get that part right. I, I'm always interested. You know, I, I used to be a, a recruiting writer way back in the, at the beginning of my, my career. And, you know, it, it was easy to identify, you know, uh, Jameis Winston coming out of high school. He, you know, they, they kind of stood out, you know, kind of uh, yep. beyond their peers. But you guys were, were so good at, at both BYU and Virginia, kind of finding those diamonds in, in the yep. rough. Was it was there something in, in film that, that you could see and, and were able to kind of project? Were, were you using those analytics? Was there something that you, you said, you know what, not only was or is this guy a fit for our program, but we know that he can develop into a, a starting caliber player. Yeah, and, and I, I really framed the programs that I've run, both of them as developmental programs, uh, not only on the field, right? And I, I love that idea. And the majority of the recruits in today's vernacular would be three-star. And what I found is, and I'm stereotyping here, there's certainly exceptions, so that's a disclaimer. But I found once it went to four and five stars, the more football only is what the family was looking for. When it was down to the, and those certainly... So please, you know, I'm not throwing a blanket statement, but in the three-star realm, man, those families were looking for football and, uh, and that became a a philosophical fit at a higher level. But those three-star players, we were taking the ones that we thought would end up. And again, in the the world's terms being five-star. And so Charles Snowden would be a great example Um, at Virginia. He's an outside linebacker for us. And we, so we knew exactly the specifications, the body type. So in our recruit, our recruiting manual, we had a picture of our ideal of every position. And so what their size, what their weight, what their speed. And so, and there's just volumes on each thing. And so if someone wasn't already there, we were looking, how likely would it be that he would become that? That's where the analytics would play in. And so Charles Snowden, for instance, is an outside linebacker for us at UVA. Um, somewhere between six, seven and six, 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 eight, you know, you never truly know. I think the NFL got him at six, six something. Um, and he was probably 185 pounds, um, in high school. We were his only scholarship offer and he, he was a basketball player and he played a little bit of receiver, but we thought after seeing Alani Fua at BYU and, and others, we started and Brian Keel, we started seeing him as a three, four outside linebacker with amazing range and a fluid athlete with long levers with really good ball skills and it wasn't long before uh, i shouldn't say that by the end of his development 240 ish right at six seven and running well and playing well on special teams and it just when you see the pictures and i used to put him up in front of our team in a team meeting the team would just die laughing because they would see him 
And then they would all turn to him and be teasing and throwing things at him in his seat. And he'd been, he's completely different, but his work ethic and his, uh, and uh, his developmental capacity physically also that came together. I loved being in that space with kids that were really hungry, really driven and wanted to become, but then also physiologically and also analytically, we thought there was the space they could become. And um, sometimes you're, you're coaching at places that young people aren't racing to as the destination for football only, right? There's a few of those places. That's why the fit became so important because while they're developing, man, I hope they're loving the community, right? I hope that they're loving uh, their teammates and that institution as well as having enough of a role at each stage where um, those simple successes were building momentum, right? And so the three-star, well, the developmental player, that's my passion. And it doesn't mean that I, I, I don't value and trust and love four or five, but what I found is I just haven't coached at places yet um, that it seems what, like where those were the, uh, the ideal places that that tier of player uh, wanted first because there were other things, either faith or academics at such a high level uh, that they could uh, maybe wasn't as high on their priority scale, which goes back to fit. I'm not surprised you brought up a, a linebacker being a former linebacker yourself, but is, is there a, a position on the field that, that is more difficult th than others and, and that you do kind of have to lean on your staff a little bit in yeah. terms of not only finding the right fit, but understanding, you know, this, I, I can't evaluate offensive linemen. You know, I, I might have troubles uh, with, with quarterbacks. Is there one position that not only alluded to you, but I, I think in terms of head coaches everywhere is, is more difficult than others to evaluate? Well, what, what I can say for sure is I can give you impact um, and what has the most impact and that's quarterback. Uh, and, and so there are elite 11 camps and there's the Manning camp and there's the different ratings for the quarterback and they're being recruited so young. Right. And so if you're not offering, which, by the way, is a whole other maybe podcast uh, offers that really count as an offer, not offering just to say you're offering. But then if they try to take it, they can't take it because that's not an offer. Right. That's interest. But really, as a sophomore, so much of the quarterback recruiting is already happening. And, and wow, that's hard for the young person. And it's also hard or for the coach. And so in terms of what will drive a program and what will um, really determine outcome at the highest level, that position. And so, man, your quarterback coach slash offensive coordinator slash player personnel director, I've had scenarios where those three all viewed it something different. And wow, as the head coach ultimately is the one that has to choose the player that's going to be leading your program with three different and distinct voices on a given player. That's so I, I was involved heavily at that position just because of impact. And so it's difficult, uh, but not impossible. Um, but the succession planning, you have to get right as well, because if you go every year at quarterback, so let's say you have a senior that junior isn't necessarily going to want to be with your program if he could be leading another program and he's just one year behind the starter. So how you space that is also critical. But back to your question of, of what's difficult. Um, offensive linemen um, that are maybe 230 pounds in high school or, or 220, but long and fast and lean and can they get big enough and all the analytical factors we looked at. Um, and, and so uh, I think that's a real challenge. Could they become an offensive lineman? The way we mitigated that risk is we would only take them if we thought they could play as a defensive lineman for us if they didn't get to the size needed in his offense, which that way we limited the risk. 
And we did the same with quarterback, meaning that if we didn't think that they could play another position, Keaton Thompson, if we didn't think they could end up becoming exceptional and helping the team besides that position, right? That only helped them because they would always have a great place to play in our program, but it would help the team because we'd have another great player. So we started saying, yes, we're recruiting him as this, and we think he can be that. But then we started adding a second filter of, however, if we miss here, he could absolutely do this. That seemed to be better for everyone in terms of that role for that player being and contributing at a level that they were going to be happy through their program or through our program. The other one that I think is pretty tricky is corner. And, and so at, at corner, um, not, not many high schools play their best player just at corner one way. And there are some really powerful high schools that have lots of players and they're, they're playing one side or the other, but very few people in high school play their best athlete only at corner and he doesn't play any other position. So we started adding a criteria again to mitigate risk. If a player was going to be a corner, he had to play something on offense. Maybe he was a dual threat quarterback, right? Maybe he was a great running back. Maybe he's a great receiver. But because that that uh, skill set was so specific and the number of plays that you'd see go their way was so small, it, it had to be something else. So anyway, I, I gave you three positions and then ways that we were kind of then, okay, we, we have to build in something else to make sure, right, that they can contribute. Uh, and again, if a player's contributing, the chance that he leaves, not very high. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Keaton Thompson there, who you guys uh, very, very lovingly uh, labeled a football player. You know, that yeah. was as what his roster position was uh, when, yeah. when he arrived in Virginia, but had a lot of success early on at Mississippi State as a quarterback, yeah. uh, you know, led him to a bowl game. You know, had, uh, there were some coaching changes. He ends up in the, in the transfer portal. How has how that kind of impacted things? You know, oh. it, does it change yeah. your evaluation of players because you do have more film on them as college players or do you kind of got to oh, also yeah. go back to your high school roots and say you know what we, we got to evaluate through this player how he is right now uh, i'm just going to give you the blunt answer once they played in college i did not go back any further i, I used the most relevant film and the most current film and in keton's case well we just loved how he played the game but we as a person he might be my all-time favorite person in the history of people he, he's just that's an exaggeration but i man he's awesome and when he came to Virginia, uh, we saw not only how he played, or we not only saw his skill set, but like it's not only what he did, but how he did it. We just loved how how he played. And he came to Virginia, and man, he was right in the middle. He and Brennan Armstrong were it, like on any given day. I was like, wow, I don't, I don't know. And but then his shoulder uh, started hurting, and it started to be where he he was having pain throwing, and it got progressively worse. But we knew, man, we he's the heartbeat of our team. This guy has to be playing, but he could no longer play that position. And so um, he, he said, just you, how, however I can be used that. Yeah, I'm, I'm in. And so we literally just decided, can he run it? Yes. Um, can he block? Yeah. Can he catch it? Yeah. Is he hard to tackle? Uh-huh. And, and is he better outsider in the slot? And can he return punts? Can he return kicks? And the team saw that and they realized that we literally for, for all of our players, we're going to do anything we can to find a place that fit their skill set, no matter if it's conventional or not. Then he chooses Jersey 99, right? Or 98, I think it is. And I was just like, oh, how do you not love that guy? Right. It's just the most understated, but team driven. Uh, but he was also appreciative that we we're trying hard to, to find a way to use him. And 
it was just, uh, but anyway, back to your point, Mississippi State film was what we looked at. I did not go back any further. Uh, and I, he was, he was, uh, I think, um, whatever they call it, Mr. Football in Louisiana and, and all those accolades, but let's face it, things change, right? And, and sometimes a year or two or three and an injury or two, or sometimes just a confidence, right? Things change. And so I was using the most recent film simply because I thought it was the most accurate assessment. If that didn't tell me enough, only then would I go farther back. Uh, but that wasn't very often. Has the transfer portal kind of altered your approach as, as you maybe look to as you as you do look to get back into into coaching? How you can kind of a, approach things a little bit differently? You know, you were known so much for for that development aspect at, at BYU and Virginia. I, I, I take the the case of uh, USC. You know, they they gutted out a win uh, up at Oregon State. Uh, your alma mater. Largely on on the course of transfers, you know, Lincoln Riley's flipped that roster quite a bit. I think it's 26 transfers that uh, the Trojans have taken in. So uh, way more roster flexibility nowadays, given some of the rule changes that has the transfer portal kind of altered your 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 looking at uh, kind of the, the future as as coaches try to build these rosters. Yeah, yes, yes, it certainly has. And no. Uh, and there are they're anchor points that are kind of non-negotiable for me. And I'm not going to fault or, or give an opinion. I know Michigan State also added a lot of transfers. Um, that might've been a year ago or two years ago. I don't remember for sure, but here, here's the reality, Brian, that you and I both know is, is as a head coach, I was paid a lot of money. These coaches, they're paid lots of money. And with those money comes not only expectations, but timeframes that are quite frankly, not realistic um, and not really uh, conducive to the developmental market. And so even while you're developing players, you have to win, right? So. So re really, we're in an inpatient uh, uh, model with extreme expectations at a place like USC or at a place like name whatever school you want, which is almost anyone now. And if it's not significant, significant progress, probably by year three, that might be as long, right? It's probably by year two that there better be something that's trending really upward. Um, that, that third year is going to be pivotal. And so the back to the portal question what, what I like about the portal is now that there's a framework of windows when the portal will be open and closed. That was absolutely necessary. So I, I, I'm for that. The other part that I really like is the accountability on our coaching staff and our whole athletic department to care for the players we have. And so if their role is marginal, but they're treated and the relationships and they, they're cared for at such a high level, I've seen players stay with the next spring, just to get into the next spring to then kind of have their breakout. I've seen them stay because of that. So I like the accountability it forces on us on how they're treated, right? And if they're commodities, they'll leave and should leave, right? But if they're really cared for and relationships are truly built and trust is established, benefit of the doubt is given, right, on both sides. At Virginia, what we found is it was very difficult to, to accept transfers at Virginia because of the academics. Um, that was uh, pretty much a, a, um, a non-issue where we really couldn't look that way at that institution. But what we could look to is graduate transfers, which made it aligned with my philosophy so well. These are young people that already graduated, are pursuing a master's for and at the same time of an increased role on the field. And they'd have immediate value. So they're getting a master's from Virginia, which, as you know, I love education. So I was like, totally and they're contributing almost immediately on the field at a position of need with maturity and experience. And so the graduate transfer 
at Virginia was, man, was that a great fit and really helped our program accelerate. Um, the transfer part of it is also holding the coaches accountable for, you have to be really careful about stacking positions of how many players in the same class at the same spot, because you can't play everyone. And, and so that has to be taken into consideration. And in those recruiting meetings, it's, will he stay while he's competing? Those, those are comments that are made, right? If he's the backup, will he stay? And early in your career, man, you have to look hard at the spacing to make sure uh, that the role is fulfilled in relation to the time frame expected. And if there's a mismatch there, the window's now open. And if those relationships aren't built, they're going to go. And that's, um, that's tough. Yeah, the, the amount of Mac Joneses of, of the world that would sit behind a, a Tua yeah. and a Jalen Hurts and, and, and just sit there and, and wait for his opportunity, that, that, that's not happening any, anymore. Yeah. Do you have to kind of caution your, your coaching staff as well? Like, hey, you know what? This guy's not playing. You got to make sure you, you check in on him or, or something like that. It, it was daily. And, and it wasn't for only the motive of having him stay, right? And, and because if that's the case, we, we had uh, this saying, Ruffin McNeil taught me, uh, real recognizes real. The kids know if if they're a player first or a person first. And, and if they truly know they're a person first to your staff, right, they, they'll give you the benefit of the doubt through the trust part of it. And that's where we started liking players that we're, we're recruiting as this position, but we know they can play this other spot. And it might be at that time where we'd say, okay, this is going to take longer. You're still this position, right? That's still, but while you're developing there, you can play right now at this position um, on your way to that one. And that ended up being a strategy for recruiting players that could do multiple things. And at a place and places like I've coached, that seemed to be a good fit. And, and so I, I think the reality, Brian, is you assess where you are, right? <laughs> um, what are the expectations and the unique at, at Virginia? My first year was just completely discovery. What is this place and who fits and, um, and so I think as coaches look really closely, if, if they're truly sincere about helping the young people, they'll look really closely where they are, who's truly going to fit there and be fulfilled. Is it a community that they could embrace and vice versa? And then is their role on the field really going to be something that will help both, right, the player and the program? And man, if they're cared for while all that's going on, the transfer portal to me is almost irrelevant, you know? Um, and if sometimes you miss, right? Or sometimes there's a personality or you have a coaching change. Let, let's face it, coaches change jobs at the end of every season and before bowl games. And then we want to get mad at playing in a bowl game. Um, we set the example, right? Um, and so they're just learning from us. And so hopefully we can model and emulate at a, at a different level of relationships and Otherwise, uh, trust is gone. And if trust is gone, it's just a game. It's just an outcome. And it's just preparation for more football, except not many get to play more football. So then what was the trade-off? Uh, you mentioned trade-off. You know, a lot of it, uh, I know just the coaches complain about time, you know, how much time recruiting has been taking up. Oh. You know, there's, there's been a look at, you know, maybe we can alter the calendar to kind of give more, more dead periods, more time off and, and, and away from the process. But, but how, how draining is it as a head coach, but also maybe also how, how rewarding is it to, to kind of go through the entire process and, and get to know some of these kids? Well, I think if we go backwards from your questioning, right, the harder something is, and then success happens, the more fulfilling it is. Recruiting is a challenge. It, it, so it literally it um, 
this is an exaggeration. It never stops. It, it's 24 seven, 365, regardless of the contact window or the evaluation window or the dead period or the quiet period, right? It's, it's nonstop with the content you're putting out, the relationships you're building, the evaluations that are going on, the roster management. I just, I think that the model is so flawed in how early we're allowing it. And, you know, once young people are being offered at 15 um, and 16 years old, we, in, in our race to get more data or to be first and provide really offers that aren't committable, uh, which is a really bad precedent to set with your word. Um, I think that we accelerated it to the point where we've created that, we've legislated it to where uh, we're feeding an all-consuming um, process that's existing that it would be that way even if we moved it later. Um, as you see, especially in the NFL, man, lots of young head coaches, um, as you're seeing in college, lots of young assistant coaches. Um, now, there is a toll. Uh, so there are young families, right? There's young wives, there's young kids, and, and the coaches are being paid really well. Uh, but I think we're almost justifying an entire entity of college sport by finance. And we all get to make our choices and we all get to, to make those choices, but it could be mitigated by moving the windows of recruiting back uh, to maybe it starts when they're a junior. Maybe it starts only before a senior year and there'll be all kinds of people that say it's not possible, it's too late for that, et cetera. I've, I've heard all those arguments. It's also too early to offer someone when they're 15 or 14 or even 16, um, and but that's the world that we're in. So as we've moved it farther, the demand on time, even in the summers, so my wife, man, she used to get so mad. We'd be on vacation somewhere and vacation is is a, a figurative term because it's such a small window. And I'm not complaining, right? It's part of the job, um, but there would be a player conduct issue or there'd be a recruit that had to be called or et cetera. And, and so, there, there is, it's always, as the head coach or as an assistant coach, you're always on. There is no off when it comes to recruiting. And so that in and of itself now feeds the cycle of the off-season rankings. So here's where you play the season. And quite frankly, the rankings are completely irrelevant till week eight, right? After week eight, everyone kind of knows, okay, this is, this is starting to take shape. It's just reason for fodder until then, which drives ratings, right? But about week eight, you kind of know. Well, then when the season's over, you're then evaluated again on your recruiting class rankings, right? And, and man, you could have a good season, but some maybe you finished, I don't know, 15th in the recruiting rankings, but you finished fifth in the polls and they'd see your program momentum going down, not up. And so there's this whole other season now before spring practice that you're being evaluated in and ranked in that's now driving even more of a frenzied approach to four, how many four stars, how many five stars and the publicity and the edits and all the things that go out with that. And so that's a whole brand new thing in addition to the finding and the analytics that go with it. So I don't see an end in sight for that. And I've sat on so many different committees and boards to slow it down and they're equal rate with speeding it up. And so I wish I could give you consensus, but I don't think we have one. Well, I mean, if, if, if we made Bronco Mendenhall the, the czar of, of college football, would, would there be one premium, like number one, here's the, the absolute thing that we, we have to change to impact recruiting? Yeah, in, in my opinion, um, and, and here's the, the problem is the enforcement, right, which I brought up before. In order to, to have rules that really work, there has to be an enforcement staff 
that's capable of carrying it out. Um, but I would not allow any recruiting contact until right before the junior season. And I think that's plenty of time. Um, and so this idea of sophomores and freshmen and et cetera, you know, that that's so to me, it, it's man, if, if it started and I'm, I'm talking about the football season of their junior year, right? If that starts when you could actually um, begin a process, that would be plenty of time and and if I was the czar and there's probably people voting for that not to happen I'm sure when they hear this but I um I just think it's we're way too early and it's driving um an entitled and quite frankly um a lot of uh lack of truth and transparency between coaches and families uh because they're offering because 20 other schools have offered um but the offer is not and if that family said yeah we want to come most when they're 15 or 16, well, okay, wait, well, you know, okay. And there'll be some answer, but it's not committable, which is quite frankly, not, it's not fair. It's not honest and it's not moral. Uh, so I, I just, I would like it much better if, if we would mean what we say and an offer is an offer. And there was a great suggestion one time of once you offer, it's immediately committable. And the family could say, I take it worth the papers. And, and so uh, I'm not the czar and I'm not saying that's a rule, but slower, certainly, at least it would be where, where my preference would be. Well, I know a lot of head coaches that would, uh, jump on that bandwagon with you as, as well. And, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned the, the signing of the papers. I mean, that, that has been something that has been discussed and, and talked about, you know, who, who knows if it'll end up happening, but there are uh, a number of reviews here uh, going on in terms of the football calendar and, and how it will impact recruiting and uh, some topics that I, I think we'll, we'll get into on this podcast uh, here in the next couple of weeks. We, we could end up talking about this. I, I don't know about you, Brian. I, I could end up talking about recruiting for another hour. Uh, if if oh, you let yeah. us go in, right. That there's there's so many issues and so many so many variables, but it goes back to your. I think the uh, the, the phrase used was the lifeblood of the lifeblood of the program, right? So organizations are made of people, right? And the quality of people that you bring in alignment, in capability, in unity, in relationships, man, that that determines outcome. And and so it's it's so 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 competitive. It's not enforced very well. Now there's nil to go with it. And there was there was so little forethought and structure given to to this before it was unleashed and it was already not being enforced. Um, and we've just made it much more unenforceable, even if that's a word. Um, however, college football is an amazing game. Young people are fiercely capable and have bright futures. There's so many cool coaches that are doing really nice things. But structurally, they have plenty of things we can be working on that can make uh, maybe maybe the game and the way the structure of the game is more uh, character filled than what it is now in terms of real substance. Well, I think that's a, a great place to leave it. I, I know if, if you want to kind of get our thoughts on, on NIL in particular, we, we discussed that in the last episode and touching on enforcement as well. So those are two big things that kind of related to to recruitment that uh, we, we did discuss last week. But uh, going to be plenty on, on this subject and, and much more in the coming weeks as we continue. Head Coach you make sure you give us uh, five stars and whatever podcast platform you might have. We're, we're on YouTube. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Go ahead and tell your friends. Uh, we really appreciate that. Uh, go ahead and leave some comments. Uh, I, I, Bronco, this has been such a pleasure to Kind of not only get to know you a little bit better, but to kind of go through and get your thoughts on, on some some huge issues in college uh, football. I, I know it's been uh, been a little hectic for you there, uh, changing houses and, and moving in, but uh, we, we appreciate you joining, and I uh, can't wait to talk to you next week.
It's my pleasure. And, and I know, Brian, you and I have talked about guests. And so there'll be other head coaches that come in. So you're not just hearing my voice, but there'll be uh, other thoughts that I think will be really valuable from people that I think you'll be very intrigued by. So we're looking to start that quickly as well. But we thanks for tuning in, everybody. Absolutely. Well, we, we really appreciate it. We can't wait to get those those guests on. This has been Head Coach You, sponsored by Collegiate Sports Connect. Thrilled to welcome you in and uh, we'll see you next week.